Our sermon today will be taken from Genesis chapter 25, verse 19 to 34. This is the word of God. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord his wife for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah and his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that rat stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. This Esau, Esau despised his birthright. This says the Lord. Thanks, Emily. Uh, let's pray before we begin. Father, give us a conviction in your word that when we say the Bible is the word of God, what we're really saying is that a God, a creator, exists who made all of this. And this creator has spoken. He wants to communicate something. And his words are here given to us. Father, how often do we treat your word without the reverence that it deserves? Help our hearts, be gracious to our minds as we study and encounter the living Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So friends, today we're going to take a break from the series of John, which is the series that we've been going through, and we're going to go through a new series called The Life of Jacob. We just kind of named that uh, off the cuff because we're talking about Jacob. Now, Jacob's story, if we try and study everything, even in this one passage, it's just going to get too much to do in, in 40 minutes on a Sunday morning. So we're going to talk about the main point, and the main point of Jacob's story is it's really all about God's total sovereignty, or in other words, God's total control in the redemption of man. God's total sovereignty and control in the redemption of man. Now, before we begin the series, it might be helpful to very briefly, and I promise it'll be brief, give us a sort of GPS of, of where in the Bible does, is this story of Jacob in. 
So we see in our passage today, Genesis chapter 25, which makes sense that we begin there, is when Jacob was born. So we're going to start there, but before we get into it, it might be helpful to go back a few chapters before Jacob's birth and go to Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God told Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, to leave his hometown, go to the promised land where God promised that he will give him descendants and make him into a great nation. A nation, God says, of people, a lineage of descendants that will be a blessing to the whole world, as God puts it. In other words, God has promised that through this nation, through the lineage of Abraham, he will bring about his redemptive plan for the whole world. And back then, they didn't really know what he was talking about or what he meant. But now, after Jesus' death and resurrection of the cross, we know that he meant he was going to bring about Jesus, our Lord and Savior, through the lineage of Abraham. And through this lineage, the redemption of the world will come. And in the middle of Abraham's journey from Ur, which is where he's from, to this promised land, Abraham fathered Isaac. He had a son named Isaac, as we read in verse 19 of our passage today. And Isaac then became the father of Jacob. So this is all still in the journey of God saying, your redemption, the world's redemption will come through this. Uh, Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac became the father of Jacob. All of them whom God has graciously and sovereignly included into his redemptive story. Now, I do realize many people have issues when we say that God is totally sovereign, or in other words, when we say God is in total control of everything, that brings up some maybe anxieties in our lives, especially when we talk about his total control in redemption, because we think if he's sovereign, if he's totally control over everything, especially about our redemption, then we're scared that might make people lazy, right? That might, make, that might lead to passivity. That might lead to non-action. And at face value, it does seem that way, doesn't it? If God is truly sovereign, if God is truly in control of everything, even in our redemption and our salvation, what's the point of doing anything? Why even try to obey and live my life in a way that's pleasing to him? Why even wake up in the morning, Right? And a lot of criticisms about Christianity is saying that if salvation is secured simply in what God did in Christ, dying on the cross for our sins, wouldn't this message discourage people from obeying God? Why obey? If salvation is the work of God alone, why obey? And I, and I get that. I, I totally get that, and I see how this can seem like a gateway to apathy. It can seem like a gateway to disobedience and laziness and non-action. But today... I want to propose the exact opposite. I like to propose that if we actually don't have a good grasp of God's sovereignty, of God's control, if we don't see how he is in control of every part of our redemption, that would actually hinder us from obedience. That would actually lesser and discourage us to be faithful to Christ. I would like to propose that embracing the Bible's claim of God's total sovereignty and control, especially in our redemption, including our redemption, actually would lead to a greater faithfulness to God, a greater humility, greater obedience, even, I want to say, a greater joy in your Christian walks. So if you're here today and you're still exploring the gospel, you're trying to get to know what Christianity is all about, what the Bible says about God and redemption, I hope you can see that the claim in the Bible of God having accomplished our salvation in Christ actually shouldn't lead to laziness and it shouldn't lead to complacency. And if you're here today, you are 
a Christian, you have received Christ as Lord and Savior, and you trust and rest in that alone for your redemption, I pray that the passage today will encourage us to see the joy and the rest that will anchor you as you continue increasingly to live for Christ in deeper delight and greater abandon for your God. How so? Three points. First, his sovereign plan, the anchor we need to be faithful. Two, his sovereign power, the peace we need to be faithful. Three, his sovereign sacrifice, the drive we need to be faithful. His sovereign plan is the anchor, his sovereign power is the peace, and his sovereign sacrifice is the drive we need to be faithful. Let's pray one more time, and then we'll get to it. Lord, again, I pray that as we explore your holy, infallible word, that you give us finite minds the ability to hear what you're trying to say and to see what you're trying to show. Because without it, we are hopeless. We beg of your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, point number one. His sovereign plan, the anchor we need to be faithful. So as mentioned earlier, our story, the story of Jacob, is really about God's sovereignty in including people, in this case, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, into his redemption story. By calling Abraham to journey out of the promised land and through his line of descendants, the Redeemer, through Isaac, through Jacob, through those descendants, the Redeemer will come. Now, this journey wasn't easy. There's a lot of uncertainties and, and anxieties that surrounded this whole journey. Why? Because throughout the journey, God keeps delaying in giving Abraham descendants. He kept delaying it. And if you don't have descendants, God can't fulfill the promise he made to Abraham, right? Abraham thought. How can God include him in this redemptive story he said he will if he never gives him the descendants to do that? And this in our passage today in verse 19, it says that Abraham eventually fathered Isaac. But if you look back to Genesis 12 and 21, you'll see how long it took Abraham and Sarah to have Isaac. He was a hundred before Isaac was born because Sarah was barren. In other words, God's fulfillment of his promise to Abraham did not happen in the timing of Abraham's preference. God's fulfillment of his promise to Abraham did not happen in the timing of Abraham's preference. So you know what Abraham felt? The same thing we would all feel if God's promise did not happen in the time that we want it to. He got really, really anxious. And he panicked. And that led him to disobey God. If you know what happened, he slept with his servant, Hagar, in order to get the child that God has promised through Sarah apart from God's will. In other words, his doubt of God's sovereign plan of redemption made him anxious overly to where he disobeyed God and acted faithlessly, and he took matters into his own hands. God won't do it, he says. It's been too long. And if I don't do something about it, if I don't take matters into my own hands, it's not going to happen. So because he doubted God will come through with a sovereign plan, he disobeyed. Does that not ring true in our own lives? I know it does in mine. All the time, God has said in his word, my redemption in Christ will be fulfilled. And no matter the calamity, it is not meant for your harm, but it will end up for your deliverance. But when things get rough, like Abraham, I get anxious. And I tend to lack trust in his plan, and I doubt it, and I say to myself, 
there's no way I'll get out of this one. This financial problem or this relational problem or this mistake I've done, it will be the doom of me. There's no way I'll get out of it if I keep faithful to what I know pleases God. If I don't cut corners, if I'm not willing to compromise holiness and integrity, there's just no way I'll get out of this. There's no way I'll be redeemed from this, which is what Abraham did. God delayed in fulfilling his promise. Abraham got anxious and panicked, and he took matters into his own hands, and he slept with Hagar. He faithlessly, note, he faithlessly tried to fulfill what God has promised apart from God's will. You see that? It gives us a bit of insight to what faithlessness is, doesn't it? We often think of faithlessness as, I want the wrong thing, and I'm going after the wrong thing. But what we see here is that Abraham's longing for descendants wasn't wrong. He wanted something good. He wanted the thing God promised. But the way he went about getting it was through faith in his own works and not in God's provision. See, the longing for peace that we want from excessive alcohol, the longing for peace isn't what's wrong. You see, the longing of wanting to be understood and embraced and loved by somebody, the longing to be understood and embraced and loved, that's not wrong. What's wrong is how we go about getting it apart from his will through our own means because we don't trust that somehow, some way, he will deliver me and he will redeem me and he will fulfill this longing. And the author of our passage today wanted to make a contrast between Abraham and Isaac. That's why after mentioning Abraham in verse 19, he contrasted with Isaac's faithfulness in verse 21. Look at verse 21. What did Isaac do? What did Isaac do as he waited for God to fulfill the promise of descendants, as he waited for, for who later we will know as Jacob and Esau? He didn't disobey God. He didn't sleep with his servant like his father Abraham did. What does verse 21 say? And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. He prayed to the Lord. See, Isaac was in the same exact situation as Abraham. God promised the same promise. Through their descendants, redemption of the world will come. God placed them both in the same situation. Both their wives couldn't have kids. Abraham disobeyed, trusted in his own means to get what God promised. Isaac remained faithful. But notice something else. How long was Isaac faithful for? This wasn't just one prayer he lifted up in verse 21. Look at verse 20. How old was Isaac when he married Rebekah? 40 years. Now look at the end of verse 26. How old was Isaac when Rebekah finally had Jacob and his twin brother Esau? 60. How long did he pray for? 20 years. He remained faithful to his God and prayed for 20 years. He did not let anxiety lead him into taking matters into his own hands. He prayed and waited on the Lord to fulfill his promise. Now, of course, this doesn't mean he just hummed a prayer for 20 years. Faith doesn't mean lack of action. I'm sure he still did his part in making this baby. 
Faith doesn't mean an action. It means acting according to and within God's will. Because you trust him. That's what Isaac did. He prayed for 20 years. He remained faithful and acted accordingly, obedient to God's will for 20 years while waiting for God to deliver the promise he made to his father Abraham that through his descendants will come a great redemptive story who eventually we know is Christ. But you see, if you're not sure of God's sovereignty, if, you're, if you doubt it like Abraham did, if you're not sure that God is in full control and his sovereign plan of redemption through his own means will come, you're going to not have the strength to wait for that long. Actually, if you don't trust God, you shouldn't wait that long. It'd be silly to arrange your whole life according to the words and promises of someone you don't trust. Why was Isaac able to do this? How was he able to pray and remain faithful for this long? What anchored him and protected him from taking matters to his own hands? Because he knew God has said it to my father Abraham and no one can frustrate his plans. As Isaiah 14 says, he is sovereign and he will bring it about. See, a lot of people think if God has already planned everything, why pray? It's easy to think, if Isaac really trusts in God's promise that through his family line, God will provide descendants and redemption of the world and all that, then why pray for 20 years? Why ask for something that he already knows he will receive? Here's why. Because he truly trusts in God. And for someone who truly trusts in God's sovereignty, that he will bring about redemption in the end through his own way, through his own means, someone who trusts that God has their best interests in mind, Prayer doesn't become something they do to get more out of God. Prayer is something they do to get more of God. It's not something you do to get more out of God, but more of Him. Of course it's okay to pray that God will bless a particular work you're doing. Of course it's okay to pray to get yourself out of a bad situation, but the one who truly trusts in God's promises and a redemption plan for their lives says this, God, even if you don't, even if you don't, I trust in your promises. I will remain faithful and act according to your will without breaking your commands because I trust that in the end, I am yours. So I will anchor my soul to that and not be moved. Tim Keller, in his book on prayer, analyzed Paul's prayer patterns in the New Testament. Uh, all of the apostles, Paul's prayer in the New Testament, he took a look at it and he saw something really interesting. He said, it's remarkable that in all of his writings, Paul's prayers for his friends contain no appeal for changes in their circumstances. It's remarkable that in all of his writings, Paul's prayers for his friends, he loved his friends. Yet... His prayers for his friends contain no appeals for change in their circumstances. It's mostly filled with praise and a call to contentment, whether in need or in plenty, Paul says. I know it's hard, but trust in the Lord. Remain faithful to him in prayer and petition, Philippians 4, Paul says. Be anxious of nothing. In other words, don't take matters into your own hands. He has a sovereign plan, you see. Remain faithful to his will in the midst of the storm. Pray that he will give you this contentment. Pray not primarily that his will will align with yours, but that yours would trust in and align with his. 
even when it's so tempting in the situation to be your own God. Here as well, you experience true peace, peace that is beyond understanding, Paul says again. Not primarily in getting God to change your circumstances, but in getting more of God in spite of your circumstances. I'm not saying this is easy. Of course it's not. And I doubt Isaac's prayers for 20 years was just filled with daisies and butterflies. I mean, if I was him, at best, by the end of year one, I'd be like, hello, where are you? What's going on? I don't want to psychoanalyze Jacob, but it's more likely his prayers were filled with requests for God to keep him faithful, begging God to keep him steady, keep him content, align my will with yours, help me trust, because right now I'm really tempted to do what my father Abraham did. Do not let me resort to my own ways. Apart from you, help me trust in your sovereign plan. See, trusting in God's sovereignty doesn't make you less faithful. It doesn't make you less of a prayer. It anchors you in faithfulness, and it anchors you to pray. But the author here tells us something else about God's sovereignty, how it encourages us to be faithful, not only because you can trust his plan, but you can realize how powerful it is. And knowing how powerful it is will give you the peace you need to remain faithful, which is our second point. His sovereign power, the peace we need to be faithful. See, when somebody promises something, it's comforting, but you won't truly be at peace unless you're certain that the person who made the promise is powerful enough to make it happen, right? And in the next few verses, the author shows us not only has God made a sovereign promise of redemption, but he can back it up because nothing in this world can overpower him. Where do we see this? Look at verse uh, 22. Rebecca, Isaac's wife, finally, 20 years later, was pregnant with twins, Jacob and Esau. And they struggled in the womb, and she asked, why is this happening to me? And God answered in verse 23, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger, and the other sh uh, the one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Well, Jacob and Esau did end up becoming the fathers of two different nations. Jacob becoming the father of Israel. Esau becoming the father of Edom. And I can't get too much into that right now. But I, what I want to focus on is God's words that said, the older shall serve the younger. Now, you must know, these words, when said back then, was totally countercultural. It is totally the opposite of what the world's system was like back then. In that day... The world favored the oldest male child, not unlike our culture here today, perhaps. But here God says, the older will serve the younger. Jacob, the unexpected younger brother, will end up getting the father's inheritance, will end up being the one included in the redemptive story that God has promised to Abraham, not Esau, the expected older brother. And that's what the case was. If you read Matthew chapter 1, verse 2, you'll see Jacob's name in Jesus' genealogy, not Esau's. You know what God's saying here? It's unbelievably gracious. He's saying, my sovereign plan, my will of one's redemption is so powerful, so strong, that not even the whole world's system of favoritism can overpower it. The world favors the older child, it won't overpower it. 
I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. See, the world favors Esau as the one included in my redemption story, in God's redemption story. That's what would make sense to them. And God says, I am beyond that. I am more powerful than that. Not even the world's favoritism can change what I have purposed. A friend of mine uh, was a part of an inner city education center in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, It's called MTR, Memphis Teachers Residency, uh, where teachers are encouraged to stay for four years in an inner city school and give quality education to children because inner city education in Memphis, Tennessee is one of the worst urban educations in the United States. So in the first day of their training, the coaches of MTR, the ones who coach the, the new teachers, they wanted to help teach the new teachers how to empathize with the condition of some of the students that they will encounter in this inner city. So what they did was um, they wanted to help them realize the unfortunate system of the world's favoritism. They gave each teacher a piece of paper, and in that piece of paper is, is written the real-life situation of these inner-city kids, and they told the teachers to pretend like they were them. And after they gave each teacher uh, a piece of the paper, uh, some pieces of paper say, your father left you, you don't have enough money to buy school supplies, and you have a neglectful mom. Another paper would say, both parents left you. You're raised by your grandmother, and you live in an abusive household. And after giving each teacher one piece of paper with a particular student situation, they brought all the teachers to a big field, and they lined them up in one starting line. And they said, here's a starting line, here's a finish line. You guys are going to race to the finish line. Okay, easy enough, the teachers thought. But before the race started, they said, I want you to take a look at your paper. If your paper says that your family doesn't have enough money for school supplies, I want you to take five steps back from the starting line. If your paper says your parents left you when you were younger, I want you to take 15 steps back from the starting line. If the paper says you live in a good household and you have enough money to buy school supplies, I want you to take 10 steps forward from the starting line. And if the paper says you're abused as a child, I want you to take 20 steps backwards. And after each person was put in their place, the MTR coach said, now on the count of three, I want all of you to run from the place where you're at as fast as you can to the finish line. And of course, some finished quicker than others because some had starting points that are closer to others and some had starting points that were further from others. See what he's trying to do here. He's trying to tell them this broken world has a system of favoritism. Don't be so naive and say to a child who lives in a neglectful household, which a lot of inner city kids do, just work harder. Just run harder. You're not on the finish line simply because you're not working hard enough. Look at your friend here. He can do it. Of course he can. He probably doesn't have to come home to neglectful and abusive parents every day. Sin has brought into this world a system of corruption that gives one more hope of redemption, as it seems, over the other. God in our passage is saying, not me. My redemption plan goes beyond the system of favoritism this world has. The older will serve the younger. It makes no sense? Good. Don't put me in a worldly box. I'm more powerful than all of that. I have willed you to be mine, and you will be mine. 
So what if you're the one who came out holding unto your brother's ankle like a beggar, verse 27 says. So what if you're the quiet, timid one living under your brother's shadow, the end of verse 27 says. So what if you're not the skilled hunter that is favored by your father Isaac, verse 28 says. So what if the world finds you insignificant? So what if the world has deemed you as the least likely candidate to receive my love? So what if the world rejects you? I want you. I want you. See, secularism says your redemption story is totally dependent upon how well you're able to manage your earthly situation before you die. Secularism says your redemption story is totally dependent upon how well you're able to manage your earthly situation before you die. So the priority in this life is earn and gain because your redemption is dependent on that because if you die with little, you've lost. The gospel says... Your redemption story has been sovereignly planned by the most powerful being in the universe for eternity. So the priority in life isn't to gain, 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 isn't to earn, 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 but to trust him and stay faithful to him. And you know what? If you die with little, if your faithfulness causes you to be despised by the world, you know what? That doesn't matter because your victory has been won by him. And it can't be changed, not even by the broken system of this world that goes against you. It cannot be changed. He's too powerful. What's even crazier, notice, notice when did God include Jacob in this redemption story? When was Jacob included? After or before he was born? When did God say to Rebekah, the older shall serve the younger? Before or after Jacob was born? Before, God willed it before either Jacob and Esau was born. This is bizarre. Not only this says, is, our, is his sovereign, sovereign plan of redemption unshakable, but the reason why it's unshakable is because you cannot lose something you never deserved in the first place. You can't lose something you didn't deserve. Look at the Apostle Paul's explanation of our story today, found in Romans 9, verse 10 to 12. This isn't, this isn't my interpretation. This is what Paul says in New Testament. And not only so, but also when Rebekah con- had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Rest, God says. Nothing can separate you from me. If I've included you in my story of redemption, nothing can take you away from under my wings because nothing can take away something you never deserve in the first place. Not now, not ever. Just trust me. Remain faithful to me. I don't know what your life situation is today. You might be in the middle of a crossroad of knowing in one hand what God's will for your dating life is, but you're feeling tempted to disobey and go the other way. Why? Because you truly feel that there is no redemption for you without him or her. Maybe in one hand, you know what faithfulness in a particular workplace decision looks like, 
but you're tempted to disobey and go the other way because you truly feel that there will be no redemption in life without that client or without that promotion. God is saying there is. There is, and it goes way beyond the system of this world. It goes way beyond the temporary time frame this world has. Trust in me. Those are scary what-ifs in life. Yes, they are. But in Christ, God says, your fate of redemption has been secured and will never change. This is your anchor. This is your peace, that you are mine. And even if the whole world goes against you, I will not let it take you away from me. So do not lose heart. Stay faithful. But, friends, what if you fail? What if the anxieties of life, which they often are, is just too much, too overbearing, too overwhelming? What if you fail to trust and obey and stay faithful to him? What if we can't wait any longer and did what Abraham did? Disobeyed, becoming undeserving, of this redemption. Last point. His sovereign sacrifice, the drive we need to be faithful. See, the conclusion that one might be tempted to assume after this is to think, well, of course Jacob was favored in God, uh, by God in the womb because God knew what Esau was going to do. Right? Look at verse 30, 34. Some might be tempted to say, God knew what that Esau didn't want his inheritance. God knew that Esau was going to give it away, and verse 34 says he will despise it. Of course, because God knew that, God would favor Jacob. Jacob deserved it. Esau didn't. Look, look at verse 30, 32. I mean, look at how easily Esau just let go of his blessings uh, of inheritance. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, I'll give you the stew, but sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? I mean, this is a pretty big inheritance to give up for a bowl of soup. And Esau knew this inheritance was more than just daddy's money. It was God's eternal covenant. And he gave it away for a bowl of soup. He was the oldest. He deserved it, but yet he traded it and it's tempting to think, well, because Esau didn't deserve it, Jacob, who's next in line, he deserves it. But look at the story again. If you read the story, it's obvious that Esau didn't deserve it. But look at Jacob's actions. Is he portrayed as a man of honor who deserves this kind of blessing? No. He capitalized on his brother's hunger. He manipulated his brother into trading his birthright. A commentator said, he, Jacob, bartered to advantage himself at his brother's expense. He exploited his brother's misery. He said, I'll give the soup to you, but you got to give me that first. Is that the character of a man who deserves to be included in God's redemptive story? No. Esau didn't deserve it, but Jacob didn't deserve it either. Neither of them did. <laughs> and here's the tension that this narrative leaves us with. Here's the biggest question of the whole Bible, you might say. How can someone who doesn't deserve God's inheritance, how can people who don't deserve to be included in God's redemptive story partake in it? That's, that's the story, that's the question of the story. And this is the crazy answer that the Bible gives us. 
They can partake in it because it was given to them by mercy. This this whole time, we're saying over and over again that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that eventually leads to Jesus Christ. You read Matthew chapter 1, that's the genealogy, which is God's fulfillment of his redemptive plan that he promised them in the Old Testament, right? But who is Jesus? If not, as John says, we've been going through John the past few months, who is Jesus if he's not the true Son of God, the only one who lived a perfect life, the only one who truly deserves the Father's inheritance, but yet he died on a cross. Why? So that you and I, who lie like Jacob and and Esau and are unfaithful like Abraham, who don't deserve the Father's inheritance, who don't deserve to be included in this redemptive plan, may share in it. See, when Jesus Christ climbed to the cross, note this, when he climbed to the cross, unlike Jacob, he did not exploit our misery to steal our inheritance. What did he do? He embraced our misery so that we can share in his inheritance. And unlike starving Esau, he wasn't coerced or forced to share his inheritance with us so that he could avoid death. What did he do? He ran to death. He willingly embraced death so that he can share the Father's inheritance with you. This is what this story is all about. The cross, the gospel, the good news, where God sovereignly included undeserving people. In other words, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, you, me, into his redemptive story. The gospel says you have a planned, all-powerful, and sacrificial sovereign God who is on your team. Are you really going to let the what-ifs of life dictate your decision? What's really safer, to make decisions based on your own speculations of what-if, or, if the gospel is true, to make decisions based on an all-powerful God who has planned your unshakable redemption story and has included you in it at his own expense. What's safer? Now let me end with what I started earlier. I said that I hope in this passage and through this sermon we can see, opposite to popular belief, that embracing the Bible's claim of God's sovereignty and and power and assurance of your redemptive story does not promote inaction. It doesn't promote disobedience. It's the opposite of it. It actually frees you up from all kinds of anxieties to follow him as the hymn says, long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eyes diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. On the cross, God is saying, I got you. Your end is no longer uncertain. There may be a lot of scary what-ifs along the road, and I totally get that, but the gospel says there is no what-if in where you will end up. Rise, come forth, and follow him. Even when the storm gets really bad and all you can see is one step at a time, that's okay. 
Just stay faithful what you know to be faithful in. God is saying, let my sovereign plan take care of the path. Let my sovereign power take care of the end. You just take one step at a time according to my word. That's faith. See, a proverb says, align your faith. I forget what chapter it's in. Align, align your steps and God will make straight your path. We often want to flip that around, don't we? We often want to say, God, tell me the path, then I'll follow it. That's not faith. God is saying, I'm not going to tell you the path. Just worry about the next step because oftentimes all the information you have is one or two or three steps ahead. Do that, and then I will make your path straight. Let my sovereign sacrifice show you just how committed I am to you, as steady as an anchor that will never be removed. Let's pray. Oh God, what a, what a huge undertaking that this passage has required of us. What a huge call this passage has called us to. We do not start at the starting point in we are able. We don't say in our starting point that we can do it. We will be eaten alive by our own prone to wondering. We'll be eaten alive by the world's favoritism. We rest only in your mercy and grace. Father, make this real. Make our minds rest in it. Make our souls find peace in it. And Lord, we know that no matter what is said or sung or prayed, unless you make these truths real and effective in our hearts, they will not be so we are dependent upon you and your spirit that you will drive and dig these truths deep in our lives because our souls depend on it. And as we take each step at a time, trusting in you, we know that there is no what if in our end. We know where we will be at, not because we're any better, not because we deserve it than anyone else, but because by your sovereign grace and mercy, you have included us, undeserving people, in your redemption story. We cannot lose what we did not deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.